1: In this podcast, we visit six of London's landmark museums with unique histories. We start at the Wallace Collection, an art collection located in Hertford House, Marylebone, brought together by the first four marquesses of Hertford and Sir Richard Wallace. It was bequeathed to the British nation by Lady Wallace, Sir Richard's widow, in 1897. My name's Louisa Price and I'm the curator of the Charles Dickens Museum. It's based in the house that Dickens lived in from 1837 to 1839. It's at 48 Doughty Street in Bloomsbury. And Dickens moved in here at a time in his life where he was just making himself known as an author in London. And over the time that he lived here, he finished Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, he wrote Nicholas Nickleby and lots of uh, journalistic pieces as well. The lovely thing about the museum is that it is a historic home open from top to bottom and so you can visit every single room as it would have been at the time that Dickens lived here. As we come into the house, you can go straight into the entrance hall and on the wall you can see letters written by Dickens about everyday life relating to his home. There is one letter though that's related to the lease of 48 Doughty Street to Dickens, and the thing I love about that letter is that it refers to Dickens as the author of the Picnic Papers, and I think this is 1837, he's just about to move into the house, and not everybody really knows who he is, but two and a half years later, my goodness, he was a proper celebrity in London in the morning room Catherine, Dickens' wife would have spent much of her time and it's in here that you can see a painting of Catherine in the 1840s and if you look very very closely you can see her engagement ring just peeking out and it's the same ring that Dickens describes in David Copperfield as the ring that David gives to his fiancée Dora Down the stairs in the servants' quarters and it's here that you can see the kitchen the scullery space but also right at the back You can see the wash house. In this space, we've got the original wash house copper. And this is a very special object because not long after Dickens left Doughty Street, he wrote a piece called A Christmas Carol. And in it, Dickens describes the Cratchit family boiling up a Christmas pudding in their wash house copper. And it fits the bill, it fits the description of what we've got here at Doughty Street. Here we've got one of our prized pieces of furniture. The desk that Dickens used later on in his life on this desk, he would have written Great Expectations, A Tale of Two Cities, Our Mutual Friend. And beside this desk, you can also see original manuscripts of Nicholas Nickleby and of Oliver Twist. It's in the master bedroom that the Dickens's two eldest daughters, Mary and Katie, would have been born. And then in the corner, you can see a little display case. And in that is a piece from Dickens's journal, Household Words, and it's the first article that he published about his separation from Catherine. What was unbeknownst to the public was that Dickens had actually met a younger woman called Alan Ternan, and he continued to have a relationship with her um, throughout the rest of his life. You can see Dickens's last will and testament on display here and uh, a rose that was left on
2: his body after he passed away in 1870. The Wallace Collection is a national museum inside a historic London townhouse on Manchester Square. The collection showcases an impressive variety of art that was amassed during the 18th and 19th centuries by the first four Marquesses of Hertford and Sir Richard Wallace, the son of the fourth Marquess. Over 5,500 works of art are preserved for current and future generations to enjoy in accordance with the bequest of Lady Wallace on her death in 1897. The sheer range and the volume of art on display is breathtaking. And nowhere is this more apparent than upon entering the great gallery. Newly refurbished in 2014, it contains one of the finest collections of old master paintings in the world. The Rubens painting, The Rainbow, is an homage to the Netherlands tradition of landscape painting. When it was put up for sale in 1856, Sir Charles Eastlake tried to purchase it for the National Gallery, but was outbid by the 4th Marquess, who paid over 4,500 guineas to secure the painting for this collection. The Laughing Cavalier is an exuberant half-length portrait by Franz Hals, painted in 1624. The work is unique for the rich colour and detail ...that is largely imparted by the sitter's flamboyant costume... ...embroidered with lace and fanciful motifs in white, gold and red threads. The study, which is often referred to as the Marie Antoinette room... ...is the feminine and opulent boudoir-style room... ...in which you will find more pieces of her furniture... ...than in any other room in the world, as well as artwork and personal effects that once belonged to the Queen. With her reputation for extravagance and frivolity, you can find the evidence of the Queen's exquisite taste... ...in the many items on display here, which include John Henry Reisner, one of the most accomplished makers of Louis XVI furniture... ...and a particular favourite of Marie Antoinette. The smoking room exhibits paintings and works of art from the medieval and Renaissance periods and includes the greater part of Sir Richard Wallace's Italian Renaissance Maiolica. Originally, the room had a sumptuous oriental interior with walls lined with Turkish tiles made by the Minton factory of Stoke-on-Trent. And a small section of this original interior survives today in an alcove at the north end of the room. Not only was this highly fashionable, but it was also practical ...as it ensured the smell of smoke did not linger in any fabric furnishings. The armories house both European and Oriental arms... ...and armour ranging from the 10th to the 19th century. In the three European rooms... ...you will find armour, sporting guns, rifles and pistols... ...all dating from the 16th to the 19th centuries. And in the Oriental section you can discover extremely fine Persian, Turkish, Balkan and Arabic weapons and armour displayed, representing one of the finest collections in Britain. Because of the nature of the Wallace collection not being lent, changed or added to, if you want to see any of these works of art, you can only ever see them here at Hartford House in Marylebone. My name is Caro
3: Howell and I'm the director of the Foundling Museum. The Foundling Museum tells the story of the Foundling Hospital, which was the UK's first children's charity and also its first public art gallery. And the Foundling Hospital was established in 1739 as a home for babies who would otherwise have been abandoned on the streets of London. They would have been called Foundlings, which is where the name originated. The children's charity continues today as the adoption charity Quorum. And we, the museum, show the remarkable collection of art which was donated in the 18th century by painters and sculptors and plasterers and carvers. Amazing range of work. It was William Hogarth, his idea to, in a sense, use art as a way of bringing people to the building. This was a huge draw to people. So the art that lines the wall are by some of the great artists of the 18th century. So you have 21-year-old Thomas Gainsborough, Joshua Reynolds, Thomas Hudson, Alan Ramsey. It's really the beginnings of the, the British art world as we understand it today. We also show an extraordinary collection of archive objects from the 18th century that tell the story of the life of the hospital and the foundlings themselves. And amongst these are tiny little everyday objects that mothers left with their babies as a way of identifying them because their names were changed when they came into the hospital. So she would leave with her children something as simple as a nut, little bits of jewellery, a pot of rouge, a spyglass. We have the children's uniforms, the cutlery that they used in the dining room, one of the beds from the hospital. These are incredibly poignant objects that really reveal everyday lives in the 18th century. In the picture gallery is Hogarth's great painting of Thomas Coram. It's one of the greatest portraits he ever painted. Um, it shows Thomas Coram, the great philanthropist whose idea it was to set up the hospital, who had to campaign for over 17 years to get permission to set the hospital up. All the other men in the room, who are all governors, are very smartly dressed with their full wigs on. And uh, Coram was a shipbuilder by trade, and he's got his ruddy, sea and sun-blasted face. His feet don't quite touch the floor, he's got his trademark red, slightly scruffy coat on. And it's a fantastic painting of a man of extraordinary moral integrity. In the 18th century, if you wanted to set up a charity, you needed the permission of the king. So he needed all of the great and the good to sign petitions to say that they were behind this cause and put it to the attention of the king so that he would grant what's called a royal charter. George II, by the grace of God. And if you look at the portrait of Thomas Coram upstairs in the picture gallery, this is what... he.
0: Here's a cool fact.
3: He's holding in his hand, the the charter is on the table and he's holding in his hand the great seal. And it's a wonderful testament to 17 years of campaigning, to not giving up, to eventually getting um, public opinion behind you.
5: This grade one building situated in the heart of London was once the home to one of the founding fathers of the United States, Benjamin Franklin a meeting with the house's director, Marcia Belliciano.
6: Benjamin Franklin arrived at 36 Craven Street in July of 1757. The house is located between the River Thames and the Strand, and in fact it's one of the reasons why Franklin chose the house, was because it is equidistant between the City of London, the Financial Centre, and the City of Westminster, where Parliament is, the seat of power.
5: The house is the world's only remaining Benjamin Franklin home.
6: Benjamin Franklin had a strong interest in politics and also in science. As a scientist, he was pursuing scientific inventions here in the house that uh, had interested him over a long period, including electricity. Probably his most famous discovery is that lightning is an electrical phenomenon. He said that he went out into a thunderstorm with his son, he took his kite, he attached a key to a string and he drew the lightning from the sky down to the key and that was how he determined that lightning was an electrical phenomenon, it wasn't just the will of God. This House served as the first de facto American Embassy. Anyone who was anyone calling in from the colonies came to pay the respects to Franklin and his main mission was to try and find a third way between the interests of the colony and the interests of the Crown. So in a sense Franklin was chief lobbyist for the colonies. He didn't have any formal role in Parliament although he did have a, f- a formal position on behalf of the Crown as postmaster for the colonies so he had to try and convince and win over um, without any formal powers.
5: Now, Olivia, we're going to visit the Museum of the August and John. We're going to meet Curator Tom, folks, and we're going to have our own guided tour. Sounds
6: oh, ideal. Hi, Tom,
0: nice to meet you.
4: Pleasure. Hey, we're now standing in the Order Gallery, which tells the story of the Order of St John from its foundation in the 11th century through its slow retreat westwards across the Mediterranean until the invasion of Napoleon into Malta in 1798 when they departed. So all the objects in this gallery relate to that period in history.
5: I'm looking at the cannon. here. Yes. it's interesting.
4: This cannon was given by King Henry VIII to the order of St. John. It was taken by the order to fight against the Ottoman Turks. Eventually, they lost it to the Ottoman Turks, who then took this cannon for their own fights. It was lost off the coast of Cyprus. This was under the sea for 300 years. And then in 1908, dredging brought this cannon up. And then in 1974, when Cyprus was granted independence, this cannon traveled back to London, and it was presented back to the order of St. John's.
5: Suit of armour. Are you telling me that somebody actually wore that in the heat of Rhodes?
4: They did indeed, yes. Um, I don't think it would have been very pleasant being a knight of St. John. But um, yeah, 30 degree heat and that chainmail, it's incredibly heavy. It's incredibly difficult to lift up. People went very young, they would have travelled on the galleys, they would have learned their trade, and certainly by the time they were teenagers, they'd probably be fighting. You had to prove appropriate aristocratic birth and lineage, to be able to join the order of St. John, you'd have to go seven generations back with your appropriate blue blood, and you would bring a proof of nobility with you. If you didn't have that appropriate noble birth, then generally you wouldn't be accepted, although certain exceptions were made if there was exceptional talent. There is a rather spectacular painting that we have on display in another gallery um, by Caravaggio. Caravaggio was made a knight of St. John. He didn't have that noble birth but he could paint a nice picture. So I think people are often quite dumbfounded that it's here on display. This is a portrait bust of Grand Master Jean de La Valette, who was the victor of the siege of Malta in 1565. He was an incredibly ruthless and strategic leader of his forces. And following the great siege, his victory was celebrated throughout Europe. And this bust was made as a diplomatic gift to be given to him following his victory it's a relatively recent addition to the collection but a spectacular thing for yeah, us to have on display place. this is the chapter hall this was constructed in 1903 as an extension to the 1504 st john's gates where meetings of chapter the governing body of the order of st john take place okay. yeah. it still functions in the same way today and the heraldry around the these are all the english priors of the order so the head of the order in England from its foundation in the mid 12th century right through to the present day just over here and the current grand prior of the order in England is Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the Queen's cousin whose sculpture is downstairs on display. We are standing in the Priory Church of the Order of St John. This is the remains of the original church that was built here in the 12th century. Today, this building functions essentially as a private chapel for the Order of St John. So, order ceremonies and services are held here. This is the crypt. This is really the star of the museum's buildings.
1: And is this room open to the public in it general?
4: It is. It's a, well, it's open on guided tours. So we have guided tours on Tuesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays at eleven and six thirty. People can just turn up and come for a wander around the buildings with a very experienced and knowledgeable guide.
5: its walk from Hampstead Underground Station is Fenton House. This 17th century merchant's house was built around 1686 by a master builder. It was bequeathed to the National Trust in 1952 by Lady Catherine Binning who bought the house in 1936. A splendid walled garden surrounds the building and contains a 300-year-old apple orchard, a kitchen garden as well as manicured lawns and hedges. A painted lead statue of a shepherd cast in 1735 overlooks the lawn. It's really hard to believe that you are in London. As well as being a beautiful building, it's home to an interesting collection of art, porcelain and early musical instruments. The staircase houses a collection of watercolour paintings bequeathed by the actor Peter Bartworth, a former local resident. Included is a painting of seahorses, which was Lady Bidding's personal favourite. She sold it, but later repurchased it. Fenton House is home to a collection of early keyboard and string instruments, known as the Benton Collection. Named after its acquirer, Major George Henry Benton Fletcher. The earliest of these is an Italian harpsichord, which dates back to 1540. In another room is an early 17th century harpsichord, rescued by Benton Fletcher from a cellar in Florence, where it was being used as a carpenter's workbench. Amazingly, all of these instruments are played and can be enjoyed by visitors each Wednesday afternoon. There are also regular concerts held at the house throughout the year. Lady Binning was an avid collector of Meissen porcelain. Her collection is displayed alongside English porcelain around the house. In the Oriental Room, you will find a collection of Chinese art from the Ming Dynasty. As well as artwork, the walls are lined with 18th century needlework of incredible intricacy. Fenton House, originally called Ostend House, was bought by Philip Fenton in 1793. The house has had 22 different owners prior to becoming a National Trust property. The National Trust has now been its longest proprietor. A makeover in the early 1970s was overseen by designer John Beresford Fowler. And although each of its previous owners made alterations, the house remains largely in its original state.